Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to our gold webinar. And in 90 minutes, you're going to hear the wisdom and the vision of our expert speaker. And four excellent companies is now a good time to turn your attention to gold. Or is it a long term store of value. Now, this is an interactive webinar. So if you have questions you'd like to ask, please pop them in the Q&A in the chat function of this webinar, and I'll do my best to read out as many as possible. Okay, first of all, we have Charlie Morris from Grenadier Guards to blog contributor on the World Gold Council website amongst many accolades, but his day job is Chief Investment Officer at ByteTree Asset Management, and he's founder of ByteTree.com. He is best known for his expertise in alternative assets, notably Bitcoin, and you'll be pleased for the purpose of this webinar, Gold. Over to you, Charlie. Thank you very much, Sarah, for that warm uh, welcome. I'll just get my presentation which um, hopefully we practice this so we can do this seamlessly. Look at that. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the time. So I'm going to push straight on because we've got a, a short 10 minute presentation, but I'm going to be talking about gold uh, and where it sits in the world today. Um, for those who have followed my work before, you'll be familiar, familiar with this diagram, which I call the money map. And, and essentially, um, the, the y-axis is inflation. So high inflation is above the line and low inflation is below the line. And to the right, we have uh, risk on, you know, when, the, when times are good for markets, and um, the bond yield tends to be rising during the risk on times, and the risk off times to the left when the, when the um, bond yield tends to be falling. And essentially, gold loves it when inflation is rising um, and, and the bond yield is coming down. That is lower real interest rates. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that is the sweet spot for gold. Now, actually, over the last couple of years, we've had higher real interest rates. And so it's a surprise, um, perhaps, that gold's done as well as it has. Yes, we've had inflation, but we've also had a much, uh, you know, a, a, an interest rate that's, that's risen a great deal, the most um, in many, many years. Now, in the risk on times, the inflation-sensitive asset would be value stocks, commodities, and, and we're not going to talk about it today, but also things like Bitcoin. Now, below the line, we have the Goldilocks scenario, where inflation is low, and during the risk-off periods, we prefer high-quality stocks, um, you know, the Unilevers and the Nestle's, um, and we also like bonds in that environment. But when we've got a risk-on environment with low inflation, uh, we really like growth stocks. Um, which have done very well um, over the last 10 years, perhaps not so much over the last two. So that's the framework. Gold likes the top left, uh, and we're going to examine where we are um, in the current cycle. This is the yield curve, the US yield curve, and um, it's a few days old. Things have been happening today, so it's probably quite a timely day for this because we've had UK um, inflation out today, and the gilt opened this morning at a roughly the same level as when we lost Liz Truss as Prime Minister. Uh, during that, 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 that budget um, uh, last October. In any event, we have in the US a five and a quarter percent interest rates. And, and that's fine, but going three years, four years out, they immediately come down to three and a half. The market thinks there's going to be an imminent hard landing because the market thinks that interest rates are going to be cut aggressively um, over the coming months. That's why we see this uh, very strange shape of yield curve. What's supposed to happen um, is the, the, I mean, the normal times is, is the interest rate by the central bank on the left-hand side is supposed to be below the long-term interest rates. In other words, you get paid 
to take on the risk of giving investing in government bonds over the long term. The opposite is true at the moment, uh, which is which is typically a forecast of recession. So the market thinks that rates are are going to fall, but, but, but will they? Because if the inflation hasn't come down, then then they won't. So let's look at inflation next. Now we can use gold and oil to kind of um, forecast inflation. So if we look at that period since 2002 to 2021 or so, uh, 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 looking at 50% oil basket and 50% gold in your basket, and looking at the price changes, we've got a very strong fit um, with, with what inflation is doing. Now, that, that was a bit ahead of the curve in 2020, going straight up, telling us there's an inflation problem on the way. And people say that gold failed this cycle. Well, it really didn't. It really didn't fail this cycle uh, because gold is up materially over the last two or three years, much more than inflation is. Um, and the same is true with oil. But that basket is really now coming down quite sharply. Um, and indeed, we are seeing fall falling inflation. But in the UK today, slightly disappointing that it didn't fall by enough. <clears throat> there's pressure in food prices and there's pressure in wages. But nevertheless, with oil weaker, with gold weaker, that tells us where we're going right now. So it's not the perfect environment for gold, yet gold has still been extremely strong. Now, this is the model I've been using for the last 10 years, um, and the, that is the black line, what I believe should be the fair value of gold. It is based on 20-year uh, US Treasury uh, tips, inflation-protected bonds. And basically, gold and 20-year bonds have approximately the same volatility. And the idea is very simple, that if gold was a bond, what kind of bond would it be? Well, it has zero coupon, that it pays no interest. It's in a long-term inflation hedge, uh, so it would be index-linked. Um, it's credit risk-free, because um, um, it's outside of the financial system. And um, it has a 20-year duration, as I just said, and it's issued by God. So you put those together and you end up with the black line, basically a zero coupon 20-year tips. That relationship has been so close for really quite a long time. Gold was undervalued in 2002-3-4 and caught up by the credit crisis. It was overvalued in 2011 and in 2020. And since that time, gold suddenly found a bid. Um, in, 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 a, in a place that it hasn't done before. And that is central bank demand. The world has changed. And now we have a neutral asset that can, that, that can flow around the world uh, in, in a sort of non-political way. Uh, Treasury bonds have been, have been weaponized by the sanctions um, on Russia. And, and the central bank demand in the last couple of years has never been as high um, in, in the history of the world. I think the extraordinary thing about gold over the last um, uh, 10 years or, or 15 years is how it's, how it's got no formal role in the financial system, yet it's come back into the system. So if you think about that, 5,000 years of history took us to 1970. Then the gold standard um, comes to an end. Gold goes mad in an environment of high inflation and then becomes irrelevant in the 1980s and the 1990s. During that time, the central banks are selling gold. They're not buying gold, they're selling gold. And then from 2009 onwards, just after the credit crisis, the central banks decide to start accumulating. Now, no one, no one in Basel or any other regulated body or G20 or any other acronym told anyone to buy gold. The central banks just did it naturally. And so gold has, has found its, um, its old place back in the uh, financial system as the master of reserves globally, um, and it's done it all on its own without a single rule book. 
And I think that's pretty interesting. Now, there is a premium on gold right now. As you can see, the gold price is 2000 the fair value is 1400 That gap you know, would normally scare me, but I think you can justify it because the world has changed. So we've had a one-off repricing, but nevertheless, I would expect gold to continue to follow um, the, the journey along real interest rates. Now, let's just look at a bit of performance over the last five years. Uh, you know, gold up 52% over five years. As I said, people say it's failed as an inflation head. Well, inflation was less, was around 20% in total um, over that period, maybe a couple of percent more. So gold's actually done much better. Uh, then in black, we've got the S&P 500. It's very interesting that the return of gold and the return of US equities has come to the same place after five years, yet in a different manner. So gold was better off in 2020 when the world was collapsing, uh, shares were scary. And then when the world was recovering, scares, shares were the place to be whilst gold took a break. Now the correlation is quite high. And I think that many people will start to say gold is very much uh, following the money supply. Um, now in the US that might be contracting, but globally it continues to rise, fueled by places like Japan and by China. The red line shows you the price of a 30-year bond. So if you invested in risk-free government bonds over the last five years, you're actually down 18%. And as at today, it's actually worse than that. You're down, um, you're down over 20% because of um, the way that, the, as I mentioned earlier, that the bond yield has been rising. So bonds have really been in a terrible place, trying to find an adjustment uh, to this inflation. And gold has obviously been the, the, the antidote to that. I show the Hang Seng Index, Hong Kong, now China, very much China these days. Um, showing you a problem in the world, uh, which is a sort of uh, a different view of how stock markets are doing compared to the S&P 500, which is up 50%. And then finally, um, I'm just going to mention the uh, the Bytree Bold Index. This is my index, which is Bitcoin and gold, 80% gold, 20% Bitcoin, approximately. But look how stable that is. And the idea here is, going back to the beginning, was you know gold works in a risk-off environment, and you need quite a lot of it because it's a very stable asset. Bitcoin is an unstable asset that works in a risk-on environment. Put them together, then you get this fabulous outcome that is the blue line. So um, I don't think I've got too much more time, uh, but I'm going to show you one slide, you know, following on from that Hang Seng Index. You know, what has been a big driver of gold over the last uh, six months or so has been that um, gold has been more expensive um, in Shanghai than it has been in London. And so there's been a strong bid from China for gold. But that's shown by the blue line. Um, but that that gap is now closed. And so, you know, I don't think that we've got that structural bid, bid from the Chinese that we did. That's a bit of a complex chart. But, you know, look at it in 2020, um, when, when we literally had um, this massive uh, discount in China that came about. And so that put a bit of pressure on, on the um, on the gold price. So I think that it's you know, one of those things that we should consider, gold's done extremely well, it's going to do extremely well, uh, but we've probably had uh, our, our, our best moment for the, um, you know, for, 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 for this year. But the geopolitics is going to keep it going. And the one thing that's really going to drive it is when we realise that there's nothing temporary about this inflation, um, this deflation shock, I beg your pardon, uh, the inflation's coming back. So last, last but not least, if you want to read my Atlas Pass Gold Report free of charge, you can put your email in at uh, uh, bytree.com. And it's a very good read indeed. Um, we are out of time, Charlie, but um, what do you mean when you said that gold's had its moment for the year? Is that it? The price isn't going to get any higher? 
Well, the dollar started rising, so the gold in dollar terms might be a bit of a problem. I think gold in sterling probably could do a bit better. There are these sorts of things. But the bond yield is rising. And, and until we have the stimulus, until the central banks say, you know, we've won this battle and they start, you know, priming up the printing press, then, you know, gold, gold, really, gold has really done its job over the last two years. It was fabulous last year when everything else was tanking. So, you know, I think we can thank it. Be a bit, little bit patient. It'll come back. But I think that we've got, you know, I, I, I can't see what drives it in the next six months. Okay. And as you've said time and time again, patience is a virtue. Charlie Morris, um, Chief Investment Officer at Bite Tree Asset Management. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> okay. To our first uh, company of the afternoon. Um, and our first company is reopening a historically high-grade gold district in South Australia. The company is Barton Gold. Two years ago, it listed on the ASX with a board holding a third of the stock. It's very much in alignment with the shareholders. The founder, chief executive and managing director is Alexander Scannon. Alex, over to you. Thank you, Sarah. I'll bring up my uh, presentation as well. I'll try to uh, try to follow Charlie's very nice presentation as smoothly as possible. Um, so I think everybody should be able to see this now on screen. I'll keep this in read mode uh, to try to maximize it. Um, look, just before we get into the presentation, uh, for those who are not familiar with the uh, with the story, uh, this cover uh, image we have here is not a stock image. This is actually a high grade open pit we have at our Tarkula project. It's shallow, high grade, simple. Uh, with some high-grade uh, gold directly in the southern pit wall here. So I'll explain why that's exciting as we scale from uh, sort of a pre-development into stage one operations and into our sort of long-term stage two platform. But from a very high level, uh, you know, who are we, what are we doing, and why? Barton Gold is a pure play South Australian gold developer. Um, we are very interested in South Australia because it is a major mining jurisdiction in Australia. It is uh, essentially the Chile of Australia. It's, it's known for uh, both copper and uh, uranium uh, production. Uh, we have just across the highway from our assets, a major mining district in the IOCG belt of the central Gala Creighton where you have Prominent Hill and Caraputina and Olympic Dam. On the other side of the highway, there is a major gold district that has a 130 year history of gold production. Um, but curiously, uh, in South Australia, you have about 25% of the country's known gold resources, but only about 2.5% of production. So there's a, 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 a mismatch there, uh, given that very heavy legacy of, of copper and uranium investment. So we've gone and re reconsolidated essentially every significant historical exploration and producing asset in this district. We now have over 5,000 square kilometers of tenements. That's over one2 5 million acres for, for, for those viewers who, who think in those terms. Uh, huge ground position on this. We had built a 1.3 million ounce uh, resource base. And importantly, we own the region's only mill. So we are focused on not only leveraging that mill in terms of starting a stage one operation with our assets, which is a considerable advantage, but also mapping out the multi-million ounce potential of this ground and taking this to something much, much larger. Uh, very clear focus and strategy for us. We don't we don't split our time on different metals and jurisdictions. Our team, our capital, our time is very very focused on a deliverable mission on a very strong platform. We have an excellent team with a lot of experience doing that, and we are very well capitalized with about eight million dollars in cash, uh, and a very unique proposition in that we actually monetize our asset platform, so we generate income as well. Uh, to look at the capital structure, 
uh, as Sarah mentioned, we have very, very strong uh, management and shareholder alignment. So um, pretty tight capital structure, about 176 million shares on issue. Today, we're between a 45 and $50 million Australian market cap. Accounting for our cash, our enterprise value is between 35 to 45, uh, 35 to $40 million Australian or you know, $25 million US, again, for those who think in US dollar terms. Uh, we have about a 33% board and management uh, representation of ownership in the company. So very, very strongly aligned. Uh, and we've got some very strong institutional and corporate shareholders as well who are aligned to sort of value add delivery steps uh, as, we, as we look at our development mandate. And we do focus uh, with our team, not only in terms of uh, alignment, but a very, very strong diversification of capability and experience. So just in our senior leadership team between the board and management team, we have over 200 years of experience uh, exploring for, discovering, permitting, financing, developing, and operating uh, assets in Australia, and in particular with a very strong South Australian pedigree and a very strong gold pedigree. So uh, Ken Williams, our non-executive chairman, is a name that may be familiar to some of you. Uh, his uh, his last major gold assignment is one that probably certainly will be. He was the CFO of Normandy Mining. Uh, Normandy was Australia's largest gold producer until it was acquired by Newmont uh, to enter Australia in 2002. They were producing over 2 million ounces uh, per annum. Uh, David Wilson and Mark Twining, our general manager of projects and exploration manager, are also former Normandy and Newmont. Our CFO was recently operating uh, uranium assets for an American defense contractor uh, subsidiary in, in South Australia, one of the most complex things you could possibly do. And we have some very, very, very well-tenured uh, gold exploration geologists, very strong governance. We have the, the former general counsel to Santos Limited, a multi-billion dollar South Australian uh, oil and gas producer uh, on, our, uh, on our board. And we even have mill uh, development and optimization expertise uh, in the form of Graham Arvidsson. So this board really reflects our forward ambitions and our forward mandate, and that is a development mandate. So when we look at what we're doing, we have a very significant asset platform. Our objective is to develop South Australia's largest independent gold producer within five years time. That would mean producing 150,000 ounces per annum. And where we're looking to do that is by combining our Tarkula and Tunkilia projects. These are, in fact, functionally a single project. This is 3,000 square kilometers of ground, uh, 70 kilometers apart from one another. And on this ground, we have over 100 kilometers of known major structures that were known to prior explorers or which we have mapped. On less than 2% of this structure, we have already built a 1.2 million ounce uh, resource base. So we are scaling this up. We think in terms of the future where we want to be, that, that 150,000 ounce prem target is essentially our stage two expansion objective. And to take that and turn that around, what that means is we are looking at leveraging our fairly unique opportunity, our advantage of the existing mill that we have in combination with our Tarkula project to start stage one operations as an intermediate step. So not going from zero to 150,000 ounces, uh, which is... Uh, far riskier and far more costly, but taking an existing fully built mill with existing fully permitted mining leases, stepping from zero to say 50,000 ounces per annum, and then using that cash flow to then grow uh, and expand into 150,000 ounces per annum. So low risk, uh, lower risk, lower cost, uh, sequential growth uh, from now through the next five years. And the reason we are focused on this as a staged expansion standpoint, aside from the uh, the, the risk and low cost proposition, of course, we, we think lower dilution proposition, 
is that we're focused on really large bulk open pit mineralization at the, at the Tunkelia project. And we're rapidly growing that to really crystallize that stage two platform. Now, we, we do profile an example in the market of exactly why we care about bulk open pit mining. Uh, Australia tends to be known for deep, high-grade underground mining. Um, but uh, Capricorn Metals have, have a team that have sort of time and again demonstrated the value of bulk open pit operations in the Australian context. Uh, back in 2015, they acquired a project called Carla Winda, uh, which when we were doing our diligence on our Tonkilia asset, we started to recognize some similarities. They bought this as a 650,000 ounce, uh, 650, ounce asset, grew it to 900 and then 1.1, 1.3 ounces. And they focused on bulk open pit model operations with, with bulk processing. And they've continued to grow that resource. It's today a 2.3 million ounce resource at a 0.7 gram per ton uh, resource grade. So something that, that people might typically think of as a low grade resource, but today they are Australia's lowest cost gold only producer. So they are a 5 million ton per annum uh, producer uh, processing about 0.9 gram per ton. Uh, and they're producing 120,000 ounces per annum at around a $1,200 Australian, all in sustaining cost of capital, so around $800 US. So it's a very, very strong role model for us. That is what we are looking to emulate and emulating it we are. Uh, we have in the past three years from pre-IPO to current grown our resources, again, from about 600,000 ounces to about 965, then 1.1 1 .1 and 1.3, and we're gonna continue to grow. So. We have been building a very strong amount of momentum towards replicating this model. We're doing that by bringing in a lot of technologies, leveraging our existing platform to both reduce costs, uh, but also generate capital. Uh, and we've had a lot of success uh, since we IPO'd about 21 months ago in June of 2021. Uh, we have found four new gold zones. That's nearly doubled our gold mineralized strike between these two assets. Uh, the South Australian government has been a very strong supporter of our mission. They've given us nearly a million dollars in grants in the past 18 months. I mentioned that we leverage our existing assets. You know, we are uh, probably better conceived of as an advanced asset manager who happens to be operating drills. You know, we, we have not only mines and a mill, but we have villages and we have surplus equipment. Uh, so we have actually generated about $5.2 million in net non-dilutive cash. So that's net of the cost of, of generating this cash. Um, through surplus asset sales, um, uh, processing concentrates that we removed from our mill, uh, and, then, and then also uh, grants and these types of things. So this really helps defend and extend our treasury. And during this time, we've done about 31,000 meters of drilling. Now, the big news for us uh, quite recently is that uh, about three weeks ago, we did upgrade the main deposit at the Tunkelia project again. So this is our big stage two expansion asset. This is the second time we've grown it. We've grown it now to about 1.15 million ounces. So that's, again, about a 45% tonnage growth and a 20% uh, metal inventory growth uh, since our last update in October of 2020. Uh, and importantly, the, the cost of acquisition, if you will, of these ounces was extremely low. So that's $12 Australian all in. That's drilling, assay, field, labor, logistics, uh, tech support, everything. So very, very low cost, very efficient extension. So when we think about the assets themselves and we look at this big long-term platform, we look at Tunkilia as our sort of medium-term anchor, uh, we're at a very interesting sort of triple point of geology here where we have a very, very large shear zone, the Ural Brinda shear zone, which is our primary uh, work area at the moment. And in the northwest corner of this shear and on our tenements, we have that 223 deposit. So that is currently 
about 38 million tons at just under a gram per ton. It's big, broad bulk, open pitable style mineralization. And when we zoom in on that work area, what we're proving in this area is that the gold endowment of this shear is much, much bigger than historically recognized. So we had a thesis that the original 223 deposit, which we acquired as a 558,000 ounce asset in uh, early 2020, we had a thesis that it would grow considerably to death in a long strike that was based upon the simple analysis that about 90% of the historical drilling uh, was done at a weighted average US dollar gold price of somewhere around $400 US per ounce. So very limited drilling to depth when gold is only so valuable. But we have also identified three new gold zones uh, called 223 North Area 191 and Area 51 alongside that shear. So now we've demonstrated that both sides of the shear are mineralized, multiple repeats of this style of mineralization. So we will continue growing this. And what that looks like uh, when we look at this long section, you can see here these two dashed lines. Those are the uh, two depth extensions that we have put a, a, on a resource shell on this asset since uh, the beginning of 2020 when we acquired it. Uh, so we extended it to depth in October 2020. We extended it again uh, three weeks ago at the end of April. Um, and importantly, we're getting very high yield discovery, so to speak, out of this. So we've invested about 2.3 million Australian dollars um, proving a, a key thesis for us, which was 50 to 150 meter depth extensions in areas that were previously untested for depth and continuity. And we've generated these ounces at about $12 per ounce, or conversely, about 16 ounces per meter drilled, which is a very, very high payoff. Importantly, the way that we're modeling this is very much with a production mentality as opposed to perhaps a promotion mentality. Um, we have actually uh, imposed uh, sort of sequentially stricter and stricter grade capping in our modeling. Uh, we're restricting our, our sort of the inference in our, in our modeling. We're tightening this model very much and we're actually allowing internal dilution inside the mineralization because it's very broad mineralization. So we're starting to model it the way that we see it being operated, which is big bulk equipment for very low cost, again, Carla window style operation. And you can see there, in the center, we have validated that there is actually a high-grade starter zone in the middle. So when we look at the geometry of this deposit, this is where it starts to get quite exciting for us, and it's the first time we're really talking about this publicly. Um, the deposit's two kilometers long. Uh, we have this high-grade 300-meter-long central zone where you've got about 100 meters of mining width uh, and 20 to 40 meters of mineralization there that's actually grading up to 10 grams per ton. So the opportunity to just start a... a a, an economically concentrated central pit to pay back your development costs. And then we also have a, a shallow supergene blanket that runs the full length of the deposit that has about 225,000 ounces of gold in it. So it can really pay for you to actually open up the whole pit and then get into those big bulk operations. And everything that we've looked at there sits just within that orange box at the top left corner of the shear on the right-hand side of your screen there. Um, we think that has the potential, just that little area to underwrite this fairly substantial long-term production target. And we have another 25 kilometers of untested shear. So we've got a district, we've got the only house on the corner, we own the, we own the whole neighborhood and we're quite excited for the growth potential beyond even our stage two plans. And if you have big bulk open pit mineralization, you would love to have some high grade gold nearby because it becomes blending feed and that is pure profit. Uh, this is where, again, we look 70 kilometers north, functionally a satellite to the Tonkilia project. And I won't labor this, but in short, uh, Tarkula is the home of high-grade high gold in South Australia. 
this is where it had its uh, its uh, sort of gold rush in the late 1800s and early 1900s at the same time as West Australia. On our mining lease, about 77,000 ounces of gold was, was taken out by pickaxe and shovel at uh, over one ounce per ton. And about 100 years later, a small open pit was dug uh, to take out another sort of 50,000 ounces. And in 2018, that pit was producing 3.8 gram per ton or two hour mill. So we have a fully permitted mining lease with proven logistics and metallurgy. And we'll look to leverage, leverage this for that stage one operation, as well as repeats of that high grade pit across the mining lease and what we call our Western targets. When we look at the pit itself, uh, this is an example of, of, of essentially why we think this area is so interesting. This is a very shallow pit. It was only dug to about 70 meters deep in its southern extent. Um, and the prior owners, uh, the prior operators actually left high grade mineralization in the bottom of the pit. We have extended mineralization over 200 meters to depth below the pit. And we've also found an entirely new gold zone called Perseverance West. This is high grade gold uh, sitting just behind the southern pit wall. So we can literally drive straight into this pit and start mining straight through that wall and put it through our mill. That's very exciting, and you can see the grades that we have in these recent intercepts. Um, none of these are in resource yet, so we're going to be looking at actually converting this into jerk resource later this year. But the bigger picture really is the bigger picture. The image on the left shows our mining lease there, fully permitted lease where we think we've identified one, two, or potentially three repeats of that high-grade open pitable mineralization. So we're going to look to validate that later this year with additional drilling and try to fit, uh, sort of crystallize and firm up that's stage one production uh, base. And then as we look across the next 10 kilometers to the west, we have mapped out now the subsurface structure and validated essentially a series of structures that are perfectly analogous to the one that created that high grade pit across a 15 kilometer long zone. Uh, and these structures happen to essentially point like arrows directly to surf, uh, surface targets that we had already worked up as very high priority targets one of which was drilled in 1997 by Anglo Gold. It's called the Warburton project, uh, Prospect. And they drilled 16 meters at three and a half grams uh, from surface. Now they didn't have the structural context here. We have built that, but it gives us a very exciting perspective that if we think we have a, a cluster of high-grade open pits on our mining lease, we may in fact have a cluster of, a cluster of clusters uh, in what will become a high-grade camp there. So, We've been very, very busy doing all of this for the past uh, three years and more. Uh, the balance of this year is going to see us doing further growth drilling, both at Tunkilia and Tarkula. We will come to the end of the year with further resource updates, both for Tarkula and Tunkilia, as we crystallize both that stage two and stage one operational pathway. And then in 2024, we'll, of course, keep growing that asset base, uh, but we'll also start thinking about how we start moving into operations and just for a bit of fun, we will also be selling some additional gold. We took about 10 tons of concentrate out of our uh, the gravity circuit of our gold mill in December. So we're currently cleaning that and we'll be selling that later this year. So pretty unique platform um, from our side. Uh, you know, we've, we've got quite a large platform, uh, de-risked pathway to development. We are growing it. We're very well capitalized. Uh, and importantly, uh, first and foremost for us is, is we've got a very, very strong team. Uh, and, and a lot of uh, sort of key stakeholder support in the state. So we've had a lot of news flow to date. Uh, we will continue to have a very great deal of news flow as we go through the end of this year uh, and put ourselves on track to uh, kick off stage one operations.
So I like that. Just for a bit of fun, we'll just clean up some gold and and sell it. <laughs> How lovely to have that available gold there just to clean and sell. So in a nutshell, you're wanting a real mining outcome. Is this without third party reliance? And is it with the blessing of the indigenous people? Yeah, look, two two very good uh, questions. Yeah, so we do not rely on third parties to achieve that mining outcome. You know, the one one thing that typically happens in the junior mining space is you map out the concept for a project, and then a medium sized company comes and they fund the feasibility, and then a big company comes and builds it. Um, you know, and and if we think about this, you know, the greatest impetus or the greatest uh, uh, sort of hurdle here is actually crossing the capital drawbridge of getting from exploration into operations because you have to fund and build a mill. We have a fully permitted mill. We have EPA licenses. We have fully permitted mining leases. So we have the ability to step into operations without requiring the support of a third party big brother. Um, we do already, of course, have all of our, our permissions from the state to operate. So that's quite helpful. Uh, and then you, you ask a really important question about the stakeholder relations, right? So our, we have state stakeholders that are not only state stakeholders, but very important uh, local relationship stakeholders. And we we work very, very closely with native, our native title partners. We have excellent relationships with them. And very quickly, is it a singular focus on gold, irrespective of what else you might find? Look, it, it is a very, very rich mineral province. Um, you know, our 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 Tonkilia asset is is it will end up probably being gold with some silver credits. That there's a very sort of clean body of mineralization there, but particularly around Tarkula, there uh, we have the same uh, Tarkula basin and Hiltaba intrusives uh, that are fueling uh, IOCG mineralization quite literally across the highway at Olympic Dam. So there is a much greater probability that we would come across other styles of mineralization, other metal, uh, other, other metals uh, con contents there. We are Barton Gold. We want to make sure that we are staying very clear and focused on that mission. But where we come across opportunities, we will we will probably look to bring in a team to focus on that and spin that value out to shareholders. So we'll create and ca we'll capture and create that value um, while keeping a very clear uh, uh, sort of. Uh, purpose uh, and mission and then into the treasury focus on on gold production for us many thanks alex scanlon from barton gold possibly a thank singular you. focus thank you very much indeed okay now to kathy uh, gold and copper it's an aim listed exploration and development company it's focused on gold and copper deposits in the highly prospective arubian nubian shield of course it's wanting to develop the tulu capi gold project which would be the first large-scale mining development in ethiopia in over 30 years harry anagnostaras adams is the executive chairman. Over to you, Harry. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, is my screen working for you, Sarah? Just to double check. It certainly is. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I'm at a master investor webinar, so I suppose I, I should try to put um, the Kefi introduction within the context of, uh, of, a, of a webinar focusing on investment generally and the gold sector specifically. Um, I'll do that as I go through it, hopefully in, in, a, in a reasonable context. What you see on the screen is the Tulukapi deposit. It's that hill in the middle in a beautiful rural part of Ethiopia. 
Okay, so we heard earlier as to the gold price, um, and I think, I suppose my take from that is that the gold price is trading at pretty high levels and um, appears to have a strong support from the international central banking community using it as a refuge from instability in the world. But why, why would one buy into gold shares specifically rather than gold? Or if one wants exposure to gold, why gold shares specifically? I suppose where I would start with that is to say that uh, gold shares will give you much higher leverage to gold. And in the case of Kefi in particular, our market cap of circa uh, 40 million pounds or 50 million US dollars, not Australian dollars. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the exposure to gold, the leverage to gold is much higher. You know, our resources, in Kefi uh, of gold as such that you'd be buying gold at $24 an ounce. So that's the leverage. Now, in respect of cash flow projections for when we're in production, it's an even higher leverage, whether you measure it as cash flows or NPVs, those extrapolated numbers for when we're in production in 2025 are, are uh, many times today's share price. So the leverage is much higher through gold. In terms of uh, growth pipeline, well, there is a pipeline at Kefi uh, in advanced projects and also in less advanced projects and grassroots projects. And that growth pipeline, if you like, complements or adds to the leverage to the gold price. And, and that's something one gets beyond investing in the bar of gold, if I put it that way. And the other thing is, although maybe, maybe some investors never think about this, but I do. And that is that you're doing good in the world. I mean, I don't want to say that, I don't want to sound flippant, but you are doing good in the world. You are providing social benefits. You're looking to create economic wealth. And we at CAFE do it to first, first sort of level international standards. Next slide, please. Now, we focus on the Arabian Nubian Shield. You might be able to tell from my accent that um, I come from Australia. When I left Australia, I left uh, just before I left, I was deputy chair of what was the Australian Gold Council. And I came over to the part of the world where I now am, today I'm sitting in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia, to focus on what I've been hearing for a long, long time amongst my friends and associates in the gold industry in Australia about all the low-hanging fruit in, uh, in the part of the world where I've been focusing. Now, probably the most widely discussed last great frontier for minerals discovery development is the Arabian Nubian Shield, the two sides of the Red Sea with a particular type of geology, which is commonplace in Australia, where a lot of the minerals, metals have been di discovered, developed in Australia that have made Australia a powerhouse in the industry globally. 
But in the Arabian Nubian Shield, despite millennia of minerals exploitation, has not had modern man attack it, you know, technical sense. So we, we Australians who grew up, if you like, with the mining industry taking off into becoming a global powerhouse in our home country, can visualize what's about to happen in the Arabian Nubian Shield. And we've been in it since 2008. And I would say for most of those years, until the last two years, we felt like uh, forward scouts taking the hits, almost like a crash test dummy at times. So that's the feeling we had of the challenges and so on that we had to confront. But all of a sudden, we're shaping up to be an overnight success after 15 years of having done the hard yards. And on this right-hand side of the screen, you can see some of the groups that have arrived recently into the Arabian Nubian Shield, the largest gold producers of the world. Ivanhoe, perhaps one of the largest profile and perhaps one of the most successful explorer developers in the world, only last week announced one of the largest ever exploration programs globally of anybody in Saudi Arabia. On the left-hand side, we can you can see some of those dots are our tenements. The yellow ones are our advanced projects where we've made discoveries. Uh, and no way would we have made these sorts of discoveries and advances in Australia. Next slide, please. Now, we started this company very small with uh, prospectors running it on day one. Uh, so our focus was prospecting. And then we installed developers and operators on the board and we're building teams below us around these advanced projects of ours, three advanced projects. And on the way through, we've had everything signed off by international brand name consultants so that we can build our syndicates. And these names would be known throughout the industry. Next slide, please. All the words describe how we do our numbers, but essentially on the left-hand side is our market cap. And in the middle is today's net present value of our advanced projects, one ready to start construction in Ethiopia. Another one would start about six months later in Saudi Arabia, and the third one would start after the first two are in production. So we have three development assets in two countries in perhaps the most exciting part of the world. And we are first in the queue for development in those countries. So since 2008, we have been, as I said earlier, doing the hard yards on the ground. And today, all of a sudden, we are the first in the queue in a region that's taking off. The red line is what the NPV of those projects is today. And over on the right-hand side is what those numbers look like once we've built them, once we're in, in production, how the NPVs will have grown, so to speak. So today's 40 million pound market cap in, in London uh, is projected based on NPVs, which is typically companies will trade it a bit over NPV depending upon their growth pipeline once they're in production. Uh, NPV, uh, you know, once in production, 2026, uh, 10 times what it is today. Next slide, please. 
this sort of tells the same story by comparing the company's market cap, the ratio of market cap to NPV with other companies' ratios market cap to NPV um, as development companies. That's the three graphs other than the one on the bottom right-hand corner. The bottom right-hand corner graph just shows that we have a relatively high grade at our first kickoff project, Tulukapi in Ethiopia, compared to projects generally in Africa. Um, the other three slides compare the ratio of our market cap to NPV. In other words, what bigger discount are we trading at to those of the other companies? And what tends to happen is that as you de-risk one's projects, as you de-risk your projects, the discount starts to diminish or shrink and your ratio between market cap and uh, NPV starts to shrink and develop and, uh, and, and then close. And uh, as we're about to go into closing mode on our financing in Ethiopia, I think that's our first large milestone uh, coming up. Uh, one would expect, normally speaking, those uh, ratios to start improve and for it to slide up that curve as we work through our, our pipeline of milestones. Next slide, please. Why not invest in gold shares? And it's the flip side of the statement that returns can be significantly leveraged. Leverage brings leverage on the positive and on the negative. So why not invest in gold shares? Well, I'd look at it from the point of view, I'm looking at it as objectively as I can to address the topic at hand as best I can. From a sectoral perspective, the index has been declining since it peaked in 2011. So you have to decide whether that's a moment to get in before it swings up or a moment to stay away. That's for your decision. Gold price cycles, it's looking pretty good near all time highs. Does that mean it's gonna drop or does that mean it's a great time to go in? That's your call. Jurisdictional, the Arabian Nubian Shield has arrived to the industry. We've been there since 2008, but only now and last year has the industry woken up to it and is now pouring in. Is that a time to get out or a time to get in? That's your call. The company, we've done the hard yards. We've demonstrated we had the foresight, the tenacity, the discipline to make our discoveries, position ourselves, get our permitting. Is this the time to jump in as compared to previously or in the future? Well, our syndicate of banks, which I haven't had time to talk about, our contractors, our partners, uh, we're all voting with our money. We think it's a fantastic time to get into our company because the sector we think is cyclical and we'd rather come into the bottom of a cycle than the top. Gold prices are strong. The jurisdictions have come good for us after all this time and the company is well positioned. So that would be my, if you like, summary of how we feel as a company and as to whether it's time to get involved from our point of view. Next slide, please. There are some appendices to all of this and time doesn't permit to go through all the background, but I hope I've given you some sense of 
the company within the context of the question why invest in gold shares. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Harry. So as you said, you've done the hard yards. You're not quite there with Tulu Kapi yet. I mean, this has been going on for decades, hasn't it? I'm just wondering, do you feel as though you're nearing the end of the approvals odyssey uh, for Tulu Kapi? And is it all dependent on the new mining minister? Don't you know, I don't know what you mean by having gone on for decades. The deposit was discovered 15 years ago. Uh, we we acquired it in 2014 um, and um, we permitted it in 2015. The company, the country rather, started to wobble in highly publicized security uh, episodes that I think probably uh, viewers would, would have read about in, in international press. And those conflicts stopped about two years ago. So during, since the time that we permitted the project and assembled the financing, uh, we had to slow down because it would have been unsafe to trigger the project. And really it's only the last two years that A, we've been ready and B, the country settled right down. We don't put people at risk. We don't put capital at risk. And our most serious responsibility is to protect people and capital. And, um, our syndicate of banks, contractors, and local partners who are putting up 95% of the capital for this truly respect the company for the way in which we've handled ourselves, never put any people or capital at risk. And um, the, the, you asked about the new mines minister. Well, he has been very supportive. He's only appointed in January or February. And, um, and yes, we're planning to, it's public knowledge, we're planning to sign the definitive documentation uh, amongst the syndicate for triggering development uh, in the next month, uh, during June. So there has been a long road, but I wouldn't call it decades. For, for me, it's been a bit less than that. And, um, and I do think that the number one priority is what we've done, and that is to be disciplined people who, who protect the project and protect everyone uh, until the moment is right. And that's what we judge that to be correct today. Okay, so obviously a lot of people are en engrossed in the Tulu Kapi story, even though it hasn't been decades, it obviously just felt like that to me. Let's look at um, the, the trio of projects. You know, what are they capable of generating in terms of uh, free cash flow and when might that occur? Well, the uh, Kapi's interest just in the Tulu Kapi project itself, which is the only one that has completed its DFS and its financing and is ready to go forward into closing the financing and construction. But just looking at that alone, the, the CAFI beneficial interest in the, in the free cash flow uh, is over $100 million a year, US dollars, um, it's starting in 2015, uh, sorry, 2025, sorry. Uh, it's a two-year bill, so construction starting um, this year and taking two years to start commissioning, to start production. So it's um, you don't need to go to the other two projects. You know, the market cap today is £40 million and the Kepi beneficial interest at consensus long-term gold prices of $1,800 today would be about £100 million a year. Uh, the other two projects 
broadly speaking, the other two projects put together are about roughly the equivalent of the two Agapi assets. So they're much less advanced and therefore it's premature to talk detailed pre-DFS is being completed. But from an NPV point of view, um, as it, at this stage, as published, they're about of similar scale to to Tulakapi for the Kip. Lots of um, interest as well about um, something that's unusual, um, mainly for the retail investor base here, is uh, you were considering a um, a Saudi listing. So, is that still on the agenda? That's um, that's new. Uh, would be new for me to talk about a company with a Saudi listing. Yeah, well, it's it really is new for anyone, Sarah, because um, it's a new, it's sort of internationally a new stock exchange and um, Centre for Minerals in particular. And what's happened, it's, it's really quite striking. You know, whilst, whilst AIM is in the doldrums and mining boards generally are in the doldrums, which I personally, as a natural contrarian, think it's an opportunity, but putting that aside, um, And whilst CAFI has been in Saudi Arabia since 2008 and has perhaps the largest exploration team in the country, and whilst one can say we've been visionaries, determined and all those things, two years ago, if I'd spoken about Saudi Arabian exploration and development to most people in investment and mining worlds, their eyes probably would have started wandering and off into some other direction because it wasn't regarded as anything sexy. All of a sudden, the whole world of mining is talking about Saudi Arabia. Robert Friedland's group has just come in. The world's largest producer is in. You know, I mean, what's going on? And the fact is that the very wealthy Saudi nation and the very wealthy Saudi investment community is absolutely determined to turn on the mining sector. It's by royal edict almost, and it's palpable, absolutely, on the ground here. You'd be, I get propositions every week to how do we get more involved with you guys in Saudi to do things because everybody wants to be part of it. And in that context, there's only two listed companies in, 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 in Saudi in the mining space. And one of them only joined the, uh, the stock exchange a year ago. So it's a baby mining exchange. And we're talking to the authorities about list, dual listing our company, but it would be the very first pre-production listing. So it's, breaking new ground again. Now we came into a frontier market to explore and develop and we've assembled a portfolio to develop. We've done that. And this frontier market now wants to develop a stock exchange. So we're discussing that. But I, I'm certainly not here to sort of say you can list a company tomorrow in an exchange uh, that has only two listed mining companies. It, it, it takes time to be a front runner. That's the point I'm making. Um, it will happen, it will come, but it, it takes time to bring other stakeholders with our vision, along with our vision. There you go. You continue to break new ground and time is, as you knew, 
um, against us, Harry. Thank you very much indeed for that um, macroeconomic picture in terms of the landscape for gold and where you fit within it. And um, yeah, a Saudi listing. Let's see where that where that goes. Harry, thank you very much indeed. Real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you for your questions as well. Okay, to 79th Resources. It is the largest developer of natural resources in West Africa with concessions that include gold, bauxite, if that's how you say it, iron ore and diamonds. Now, this is the natural resources arm of the family-owned asset management company, the 79th Group. Natalie Bellis is chief executive of the resources arm. Thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you so much. So I'll just share my screen. And I think um, the ambition of today is purely around amplifying and let everybody know what we do and why we're different to most other companies. It's been really interesting to hear uh, from the likes of Harry and Alex earlier. And it'll be really good to show how we operate as a business, as asset managers, as opposed to miners. We definitely strive for procuring undervalued assets and realizing their potential and value. So I'll move to sharing my screen and then we'll start to go through the presentation. Just bear with me one moment. Okay, there we are. So as you can see, I'm Natalie Bellis. I'm CEO of the 79th Group. I've been in position here for around, coming up to three years now. Um, the group as a whole um, has two sectors. So we work in the real estate sector, predominantly UK real estate, and we have the natural resources division of the business, which is what we're going to focus on today. So if I just move through, so a quick introduction to 79th Group. We are a uh, family-owned entrepreneurial firm. Uh, we are uh, 30 years of experience within the real, real estate sector um, and around 15 years in the natural resources sector through different um, expertise and, diff and different projects that we've worked within. Um, our over, overarching business model is to acquire undervalued land. Now, that is in any capacity, as I say, that applies to our real estate sector, um, but equally uh, applies to the natural resources division. And we're very much um, embedded within our business is very much the family values. So it's all about trust, honesty, um, transparency and respect. And that's definitely displayed in how we operate our natural resources sector of the business. So 79th resources, effectively this journey began around 2011. So a lot of people have a misconception that this is a relatively new journey for us. Uh, it started back with our founders who are Dave, Jake and Curtis Webster. They're the owners of the company. Uh, Dave Webster actually moved into this sector around 2011 um, and saw a really big opportunity. Um, he was... Um, working with some rather large law firms, overseeing some transactional sides of gold importation, exportation. And he just saw the opportunity in the country that he was in, which is for us, Republic of Guinea and West Africa. What he saw was that there was such an opportunity to make a difference, but that equally doesn't have to mean that you're just there to potentially do good within the communities, but you're there to actually, you know, build a sustainable business. So he worked there from around 2011 and across the last 10 years has started to um, formulate our strategy for the resources sector. So we're focused at the moment in a place called the Sigori Basin, which is in the Republic of Guinea and has got some very large, well-known uh, mines operational there, such as Anglo Gold Ashanti. We currently have three 
um, tenements under exploration within that sector, uh, two of which are significantly advanced, and I'll go into that in more detail, but we are undergoing a rather large drilling campaign uh, right now, uh, which is expected to continue into probably around mid to end of June. Overall, our portfolio for the company, we have a very diverse commodity base. So we have the three assets that we're currently exploring right now, but behind that, we have a further 16 assets. So I think what you'll see about 79th resources is our focus is land with value. So we effectively are asset managers that land bank for the potential growth. So I've, I've had someone um, mention to me a couple, a couple of weeks back, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slow scheme. And I think there's a couple of ways you can view that. Within anything to do with exploration, obviously it takes time. You have to be measured and controlled. You have to understand your risk appetite. And also you have to manage your budgets very carefully. And that's something that we actually do here at 79th. We use the world's leading experts as our barometer, as our sense check and as our advisors. So effectively, a typical exploration program before, you know, looking into production and that type of thing may take anywhere between five to 10 years. It obviously depends on the land, depends on what, what you get out of each stage. But us, the three assets that we're exploring now, we've managed to get to the point of drilling within two years. And I think that's quite significant. It doesn't mean that we're risk takers. It means that we're very strategic with our projects. We identify and reduce down timescales where it's actually practical to do so. Um, our projects have been managed, you know, through uh, world-leading experts. We use SRK Exploration to manage the projects, but more significantly, we actually have an on um, in-country on the ground team as well. So who are mining engineers, mining consultants, et cetera, who manage the projects day to day. And I think one of the things, having listened to the other presentations earlier, as I say, we're a family business and therefore the family actually attend all of these projects and sites as well at various different stages. But that's the approach that you get with the company that we are, is that we are very much hands-on. So I'll just dive into our story a little bit. As I, as I mentioned earlier, we had Dave Webster, our chairman, who started in this sector 2011, but actually went into the full precious metals sector in 2013. Throughout his career, career up until the point 79th Resources was formed and we had our assets to explore and manage. Um, he's an artisanal miner, so he's set up wash plants, he's set up artisanal practices with local communities, and he identified there and then that there's so much opportunity to be able to work with the local communities, and that's a massive part of our, our, our strategic plans. So we'll come on to RESG and, and what we do in that later. But I think that was the real eye opener for, for us as a company as well, to realize that there's so much more opportunity than just obviously developing the assets. It's what you can actually embed into the local economy, what you can do uh, for sustainability in the local communities. And if you have that type of respect and that type of relationship with the communities you work in, obviously it's going to be a lot more successful. Um, so you'll see there around 2016, our former brand, which is now 79th Resources, was Lusso Tesoro. And this is where um, Dave and his sons actually developed the strategy of what they wanted to do. So they'd been in the Republic of Guinea for some time. They'd seen the um, artisanal activity, done some import and export, and then actually sat back and thought about the bigger picture here. 
rather than doing a lot of gold trading in some capacity, which is obviously very labor intensive, they actually looked at what could be the bigger picture. And that would be to actually have the licensing to explore the lands and do something on a much larger scale. So by 2021, we acquired our first three concessions, which we'll touch on shortly, but they are known as Lusso South, Lusso North and Lusso Mandiana. We've explored these significantly up until this point today where we're actually drilling on them um, and used SRK. We've used local in-country geologists as well. And the acquisition of those was actually really quite important because, again, it's about managing your risk and de-risking the business. We acquired those based on historical data that was available. We saw that there was potential to expedite our exploration process. Um, quicker than your, your normal standards is what I'd probably say. Um, so that's why we first acquired those. And that's where we are, why we are where we are today in 2023, having two years of exploration to the point of we're drilling, hopefully moving towards resource estimation based on those drill results. Um, 2023 is a really significant year for us, obviously having the drilling campaign underway, uh, being able to you know reap the results of what those drills are, but equally it's looking at the longer term view of the wider asset class that we've got with the um, other 16 sites that we have and looking towards a listing later this year. Now, uh, we have predominantly looked at TSXV. I think it was quite interesting before what Harry mentioned around um, the Saudi uh, listing that they were looking at. And I think for me, if, if you from a personal perspective, I would always look at opportunity where there's potential for growth. And I think if you look at Republic of Guinea as a whole, it's massively undermined. It's top 20 in gold pr production for the world, top three for bauxite, top 15 for diamonds. I think, you know, from, from um, an external point of view, you know, it's such a brilliant opportunity in that country alone. And I think that's why we've focused so much on diversifying our asset portfolio there to start to look at, well, you know, what, what's the potential within every type of asset class there is. So that's where we, we go into the fact we've got bauxite, iron ore, diamonds, gold, obviously gold now with the trends of everything that's happening, it's obviously um, on its way up and will continue to do so. Um, so it is a good, you know, overall asset class to have good diversification, but there are other minerals there as well. And being top production supply versus demand, Republic of Guinea is, is a great opportunity for us at the moment. So I'll just talk to you slightly on the um, actual concessions that we have right now. So as I mentioned previously, there are uh, three that we're heavily exploring, Lusso South, Lusso North and Lusso Mandiana. Now, Lusso South is actually quite significant. It's situated adjacent to Anglo Gold Ashanti, as I say, very much um, a lot of historical data with that and very, very active in an artisanal space. And in order for us to progress the way that we have, this is why I want to come back again to the community relations and how we are different to most other asset management management companies. I noticed through the other presentations before that there was not very much a focus on that sector, which is absolutely why we are different. We have um, employed 46 of the local community at the moment to work on these sites with us. We've provided them with first aid training. We've provided them with health and safety training, and we're actually employing local communities to develop some of, for instance, the core boxes for the core samples that'll be shipped to the labs. So we're very much on investing in the people around us as well, you know, developing 
sustainability, giving them transferable skills. But equally, that absolutely helps our operation. We've got an amazing you know, community relations officer who actually oversees this day to day with all of the teams there. And it's nice to know that you're not creating a codependency. I think that's really important that, you know, ultimately everyone with the best will in the world will always want to say they'll be there to support people. But our focus is actually giving people transferable skills that they can use elsewhere. Um, our Lusso North site, again, very close proximity to Lusso South. Uh, we've had brilliant sampling results so far. We've uh, done a variation of different types of sampling, but uh, most recently was Ionic Leach. We had some really good kicks in the northwest of the permit. Um, so we're continuing some infill uh, sampling on that as our diamond drill and air core drilling are actually focused predominantly on Lusso South at this point. And our Lusso Mandiana, once again, we've had some brilliant uh, local samples completed. This is now really defining the targets for us to look at what we can do with that later this year. So just to go into the campaign, um, as I touched on before, we've got a combination. We have some infill sand, we have some ionic leach. We've also got um, a combination of air core and diamond drill holes. Now, there is a rationale as to why we've gone with these approaches too. Obviously, from an environmental aspect, air core is a lot more environmentally friendly. Um, the diamond drilling has been strategic, and we are only actually completing six diamond drill holes versus 100 and eight air core holes. And the diamond drilling is actually specifically for a very large artisanal pit that has been excavated significantly across the last two years um, and has some really good gold trends based on, you know, the, as I mentioned before, the historic data, as well as um, what we've been able to do with our sampling. So we've got a very targeted approach. We're hoping to replicate this model across our Lusso South and Mandiana later this year. But right now, that's where the main of the drilling holes are going to be completed. Um, so again, just a bit, a bit of a summary uh, roundup, really. So why now? So, you know, as I say, we've been in country, and I say the royal way, it's, it, you know, my chairman um, and the directors and owners um, have been in country for around 10 years. They've got to know the local communities. They've got to know the local culture. They've identified the opportunity and it suits our business model. Our business model is really simple, undervalued land that we can really generate some value from. And that's, that's across every sector of our business. Obviously gold in the economy, it, it's a brilliant time for gold at the moment. It will always continue to rise. Obviously it can't continue to rise forever. And I actually sound verbatim like our chairman at the moment, but if it rose that way forever, why would you ever do anything different other than buy gold? So there will always be slight dips, but the trajectory for it at the moment is, is really, really great. And, you know, gives a lot of comfort towards what we're doing as well. And it's a blueprint for expansion. We continue, we will continue to diversify and buy and acquire assets with significant potential. Um, right now, we are focused on our main three. But as I say, behind that, there's a really big portfolio that we, you know, we're really looking forward to getting into. Um, touching on our values. So again, we identify opportunities and we tend to go where other people won't. And I mean that in quite a physical sense. So, um, for instance, I'm due to visit our sites in the Republic of Guinea within the next um, three weeks. Um, I'm going to meet the local communities and understand, you know, some of the commitments that we can help them with, but equally get their real-time feedback on what they need and, and need support with. Historically, they're usually typically promised a really nice 
um, opportunity once a mine is developed. And um, for us, we understand that, you know, there are real time initiatives that we can be a part of. Um, just to give you a quick anecdote, the, one of the things that has been highlighted through our community work at the minute is that there is a significant plastics problem within some of the villages. So we are actually going out to look at that and see what we can actually do. And I think that's where you get the differentiator factor from our company to um, a, a large corporate. It will quite literally be our team that travel out there and go and do all of that work and actually sit with the communities to understand what we can do and how we can support them to go further. Well, as, as the second point uh, clearly emphasizes, it is a family business through and through. Core strong values, very committed, entrepreneurial, um, but grounded. <laughs> I think that's the simplest way I can pop that for you. Um, <clears throat> building real and valuable relationships, 100% cemented, you know, outside of the community and having um, really good relationships with them. We obviously do have to take things into a very corporate and risk mitigation um, stance as well. So we employ the, you know, the best companies in the world to ensure that we are compliant, that we minimize risk, that we manage risk. It's really important that we assess everything that we do from a regulatory landscape as well. So we, you know, we have quite a lot of um, assurance and we have quite a lot of internal and external audit activity that makes sure that we're still on the right path and that there's nothing um, that could potentially, you know, uh, trip us up in any capacity. So we use um, some of the world's leading brands to support all of that. And that's where we almost separate from the, the company, uh, family company mentality into the corporate mentality. But I think you can apply both and get harmony within, which is what we do. And I think it's very much about staying connected. Having our own team in country to manage the operation hands-on has been an absolute blessing. It has been amazing to know that they are physically there, that they're able to deal with things in real time um, and that they, they can be reactive if needed. But equally, it shows a really good presence as well. And again, it just cements that relationship that we have with Guinea as a whole. Um, so to talk you through um, our ESG initiatives, I mentioned earlier we have an appointed uh, community relations officer, and that has been integral to ensure that the activity we undertake is, it, obviously it can be approved, in, and this is in any capacity, any country, it can always be approved with a piece of paper, but I think the, the, the real win in this is ensuring that you do have uh, the, the local Indigenous people or communities blessing to be able to continue that type of work. Having our community relations officer has made that so much easier. Um, so that, that person is situated in the area in which we are working. And that's how we've been able to do things such as employ locally, you know, get a supply chain locally. It's been really, really a pivotal part. And it's something that I don't often see in many other big corporates. I don't think it's been touched on today in many other presentations, whereas I actually want to emphasize that is why we are different, because we've massively invested into that sector. The training programs for workers, as I mentioned before, transferable skills. That's what we're about. We're, you know, we're family run. We're very committed and we want to ensure that we do some good at the same time. And the local employment opportunities program that can go beyond what we're doing right now in terms of the um, exploration plan. You know, our longer term strategy is to be able to have more sustainable employment opportunities. We have currently around 10 local employees that work for 79th Resources in Guinea. You know, our expansion plans will mean that will grow, but we're happy to support that with, with, with local employees. 
environmental assessments that is absolutely critical and it's something that one you legally have to do to ensure that you know you are compliant and you are meeting regulatory standards but it's something that you know taking a wider view on things the the plastics um, issue that I mentioned before that was known to us because we're local on the ground and we've got our finger on the pulse from an environmental setup it probably wouldn't have highlighted anything, but we can see that that's a real issue that needs addressing. So that's where the importance of having that local team and expertise is absolutely second to none. And it's something I would encourage most companies or if not all companies to do. And equally know you know what's happening real time. Again, a lot of the discussions we've had today or we, we see quite frequently is, is not really talking about finger on the pulse issues. So our ability is to be able to address those in real time. Uh, and we obviously have some donation campaigns setting up. Obviously, we're looking at how we can support the infrastructure within the Republic of Guinea, uh, you know, directly by supporting some, there's some school initiatives and, and things of that nature. But our focus is definitely around the employment and the sustainability of, of the local communities. Natalie, you've run out of time. So if you want to quickly wrap up, and we might have time for one question. Of course, no problem. So we've been through the, the TSXV and, and just looking forward, just to let you know what we're planning. We're obviously going to continue with our drilling exploration uh, campaign, which is due to commence, um, due to finish, sorry, within the next few weeks. Um, continued strong investment into our local teams and that into the local communities um, and our international expansion and, and listing. That's the main pivotal part for this year. So we anticipate a listing by autumn. Um, of 2023 uh, with our first sites um, that are the Gold, Lusso North, Lusso South, Mandiana. Lovely. Thank you very much, Natalie. So your people focused first, um, which is fitting since it's a family business, hmm. then it's growth and you're looking at a TSXV listing because that's would uh, give shareholders the best growth opportunity, but not AIM then? So you're not considering AIM at all? Uh, no, we had looked at AIM, um, but for us, again, we're a family business. We, we like to, you know, touch, feel, and see how things feel for us as a group. And we just felt that the TSXV and Canada was a very, very sensible business strategy approach, but equally a very welcoming um, arena. And it, it just fitted naturally with the, with the owner's ambitions. So, Natalie, going back to people, question from Shelley. How do you ensure that you meet ESG standards regarding labour force method of extraction, for example? Well, I think that, that's a bit of a double-edged sword, but we, we, we are not a mining company, as, as I mentioned. We are asset managers. But I think that the way in which you can look at ESG is you have to manage your supply chain. So any of our techniques that we um, move into, whether that be drilling something, we you know, assess our supply chain because, as I say, as the asset managers, we don't physically do a lot of that. Using the best available technologies, there is a lot of technologies available right now in hydro and solar. Again, that has to fit with the corporate model and you know the, um, the financial plans to accommodate all of that. Water management, basic things such as that, having procedures and policies in place to manage your water and waste usage. Um, and equally looking at the communities, again, that is a massive part of this actually making sure that you have community engagement to have them um, support you in your environmental initiatives. The example being the plastics once again earlier, you know, that is not a clear up the 
plastics and hope it goes away. That's about education. That's training the communities to find alternative ways to processes that have been embedded in them for such a long time. Natalie, safe trip in three weeks' time. And don't be a stranger. We'd like to hear how that goes. If you write one of your um, blogs, um, which are very well written, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Natalie Bellis, Chief Executive of 79th Resources, the 79th Group. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, our final presentation is from Condor Gold. It's AIM and TSX listed. The company is Gold Exploration Development Company with a focus on Nicaragua. Its principal asset is La India, uh, which comprises of a large, highly prospective land package of 588 square kilometers, comprising 12 concessions. In November, investors learned the company would consider selling the assets of the company, and there have been updates about that process as well. We are joined now by Mark Child, who is the chairman and the chief executive but we can still see Natalie's screen. So we shall just get um, Mark's presentation on. Um, it's well worth the wait. I know that we're overrunning ever so slightly, but if we can get um, Mark's presentation on, if Mark could do that, very good. And we go to the slide show bit just at the top, just the top on the, the tab there. Very good. Mark, I shall let you take... Okay, can, just to check, can you hear me okay? Yes, absolutely, thank you. Okay, good. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Sarah. I'm just going to um, note, note the time at... Uh, yeah, so I've got 15 minutes of presentation. So this presentation, I'm going to split between going through some slides and then something a bit different. We've got a four-minute video to show you on the exploration uh, on the main principle, land your vein. Um, so that India project is uh, really fully permitted and construction ready. Um, and that's taken us several years to get there. Um, we've got a bankable feasibility study completed on the on the, the main pit, which we'll run the video on. Uh, and this slide is showing you where the site location of the processing plant is going to be. This is where the jaw crusher is. So I took this photo. We've bought for we bought a thousand hectares of land. We've cleared the site on 14 hectares. Uh, and as I said, we've got all the permits. Our base case is 100,000 ounces of gold a year. Here's our statutory disclaimer. Um, on the reserve case, uh, which we put out in October last year, and there's a 570 page uh, document on CEDAR in Canada, we've 82,000 ounces of gold a year just out of probable mineral reserves. Uh, the total upfront capex is 106 million US dollars. Um, but we're targeting 100,000 ounces of gold by adding in two feeder pits, which I'll come on to. We've bought a sag mill, which is in country. We've bought the land. Um, and our expansion phase is to get to 150,000 ounces of gold. Uh, we believe we're on a major gold district, which I'm including some additional slides on, uh, of over 5 to 10 million ounces of additional gold. Uh, and we've got pretty strong economics. We've got very high grade. Uh, our all-in sustaining cash costs are roughly half the current gold price. Um, we're valued at about $26 an ounce in the ground. Uh, Nicaragua uh, is very mining friendly. Gold is the biggest export. Um, I'll let people just look at this in their own time for speed. 
the shareholder breakdown, we have uh, Jim Mellon, who's known to many people on the Master Investor Conference, where he was speaking as the Master Investor and uh, is our chairman uh, and a 20.2% shareholder in Condor Gold. And he's been incredibly supportive over several years and been to the project. Um, I would just say we've got a, a 30 pence uh, yesterday's valuation. Uh, we're about uh, 54 million sterling market capitalization uh, or 67 million US dollars. I'm trying to give here an indication of the valuations that this puts on the company. So this is all in the public domain. We have a total of 2.5 million ounces. If I include the silver credits and the Rio Luna concession, uh, which is an additional 90,000 ounce of gold equivalent. So on that basis, if we take a gold in the ground number, we're 1.3% of a gold price if gold is $2,000 an ounce or $27 an ounce in the ground. These companies, uh, when they get sold, tend to be anything between 3 to 10% of the gold price in the ground, depending on the stage of the advancement of the project, the political risk and appetite, basically. If we get to the 150,000 ounces of gold per annum, uh, which we've done in a PEA, and these numbers are in the public domain. Uh, they're all they're produced by SRK Consulting, and that, that this relates to our 2021 PEA. But if you look at that, uh, as you can take the prices here at $1,700 an ounce gold, we have a net present value of 418 million. This is after upfront capex and after taxes, uh, and then at uh, 2,000, it's over 600 million. And at 2,200, it's over 670 million. So in terms of price to book, that's the other way to look at this discount to NAV, we're ranging anything between 0.1 times to 0.16 times NAV. So the message is that's pretty undervalued and that takes no account of the expiration upside. So here's the district. We've, we've picked up deliberately over 587 square kilometers. We believe this is a major structural trend and you can see this ridge of hills here between two, the white areas to the left and right are pretty, uh, are, are, um, are, are paddy fields and grazing. Uh, and we've got major regional faults going through this district. This is a, a, a new slide. This is a sort of what if could the district be? Um, and so the geologists run a detailed study. We, we've we've uh, flown this with helicopter-borne geophysics and magnetics. We've done soil sampling over 300 square kilometers. And so this is the sort of study you do to say, what if, what could this be? This is very conceptual. So I just want to emphasize, this is sort of an internal planning document, which any major would do. And it's done by our geologists and external consultants. So what could this host? And if we looked at everything and everything came through, we think there could be up to an additional 12.6 million ounces of gold. Now, the easy low-hanging fruit is just to extend down the ore chutes and drill along. And that, that target uh, is the first part of 3.4 million. But we do think we're on a very big gold district. I emphasize it's all got to be drilled out in due course. And there are 22 targets identified here. The core project that we have today is this 2.3 million ounce of gold. And there are seven different deposits. The core are the three vein sets highlighted there of Landia, America, Mestiza. And then black, that's what's actually permitted. And here's the permitted area of 2.1 million ounces. And the magenta area is all the um, permitted boundaries. Uh, so that's all permitted for construction and extraction 
uh, of that 2.1 million. Uh, sorry, the open pit part is for extraction, but the the open pit, the underground is underneath the pit. So that's just going to get a foregone conclusion that it's going to get permitted. Uh, and this is the open pit. So what I'd like to do now, if I could, is to run that video, uh, if you don't mind, if you could put that on Sarah or Tim. Okay, Tim's just going to load that now. Bear with me one moment. Make sure I get the right screen. And then I will need to. On your gold is to find a mineral resource, 2.3 million ounces of gold on the La India project since starting exploration in the area, the end of 2006. The mineral resource is contained within quartz veins and breaches, seven different prospect locations, all within 10 kilometers of the historic La India gold mine. Whilst each prospect has its own story, potential to expand with further exploration. On this video, I would like to introduce the principal La India vein set, which contains just over half of the mineral resource, 1.3 million ounces of indicated and inferred gold. 890,000 ounces at the more confident indicated category and 370,000 ounces in the inferred category, most of which is in the deeper parts of your body, where wide space drilling was searching for the limits of mineralization, which still remains open in several directions. Of economic importance, the style of mineralization is amenable to both open pit and underground mining. Feasibility study completed in 2022 details plans to excavate a 200-meter-deep pit along the central 800-meter-long segment of the vein to extract 7.3 million tons of ore, grading at 2.6 grams per tonne to produce 602,000 ounces of gold. A preliminary economic assessment released the previous year showed how mining could continue underground beneath the pit. I would now like to take you on a walk along the 1,600-meter-long India vein from north to south. At the northern end of the vein is a single planar vein dipping at 45 degrees, locally exposed, running up the side of a hill. The bulk of the open pit resource is in the central 800-meter segment, approximately half of the vein, where the vein splits into a thick set of steep, stacked veins and coarse branches with the gold concentrated in the zones close to where the vein splits. Here, part of the northern vein stack is still exposed, showing classic low sulfidation epithermal textures, such as banding, bladed calcite replacement texture, and brecciation in the footwork. At the southern end of the stacked vein segment, the smooth India full plane that forms a football to the mineralization is well exposed along with a remnant of the brachiated vein. The southern end of the vein dips at 60 to 65 degrees and can be traced for a further 400 meters to the south, where it was exploited at only shallow levels by previous miners and artisanal miners. Further south, the vein cannot be found at surface but deep drilling has returned some excellent intercepts at 200 to 300 meters below surface. Drill intercepts of up to 16 meters true thickness at 10.2 grams per ton gold have been returned. 
This mineralization is interpreted as a continuation of the, vein, of the India vein in a down faulted block. We believe that the southern end of the vein has been displaced by a major regional fault, the highway fault, and down thrown several hundred meters so that the entire epithermal system is hidden and fully preserved beneath the surface. The full extent of this hidden deep-seated mineralization remains unknown and in need of drill testing. This location, a subsurface continuation of the open pitable segment of the India vein, can easily be accessed for underground mining from the bottom of the pit and is a primary target for the resource expansion and the development of the underground mining phase of the Landia project. Thank you for listening. Luke English, resident geologist at Landia project for Condor Gold PLC. Many thanks for showing that, Tim. And that's a, a very recent video from Condor Gold there, and it uh, was just released four days ago. So, Mark, you've got, now got control um, of the screen again. If you want to, if you've got any more slides to show us, um, or if okay. you just... Uh, if I just press forward, has that gone forward, Sarah? So you now need to share your screen. At the bottom, you'll see um, a green arrow which says share screen. Um, if you click on that, get back. Okay. Yeah, right. that's all right. And just okay. there. Does that work? Yep, we've got you. Okay, so how, how, I can wrap this up in a few minutes. How much time have I got left just after that video? Could you give me an indication? Um, so you've got eight minutes left. Okay, that's 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 working great. Um, so I'm now just going to go on to the. Um, I'll go on to the slideshow. Okay, uh, so I've covered this uh, this slide, and if you look to the south where it says Landia vein set, that's the one point six million out six one point six kilometer sorry open pit that Dr. Luke English just just sort of walked you through and did the video. Um, so if we if we just stay with that pit for a moment, uh, this is where the reserve is in that pit, and this gives you eighty two thousand ounces of gold a year. So. I'll let people read this at their own leisure, but basically a feasibility study is plus or minus 10 to 15% accuracy and cost us $7 million to get there just for that pit that you saw there. Uh, and so it's a really super high level of um, confidence that A, the gold's there, and you can see it in that banded quartz um, material, they material that uh, Luke, Luke pointed out in three things. So just, just have confidence that this looks really, really thorough that it's there. I'm going to go forward. Um, this touches on valuations again, so I'm going to I'm going to skip over that because we've kind of touched on it. This is the processing plant site. So this is this is an animation. I have another video on this, but um, go to Condor Gold YouTube channel and you'll see a a, a a fly through of this for four or five minutes done by an engineering firm from Australia called uh, uh, Hanon Engineering, and this is the photo on the first slide I showed that where the primary crusher is, I took that photo. So this is where it, all, everything is laid out. So this is now 50% designed, engineered, uh, and uh, super detailed. And we've got all the drawings and everything for this now. Uh, we've got the sagman in the country I mentioned. Uh, these are some of the intercepts on the pit. I'll skip those because Luke spoke to them, but it's very high grade. Resource expansion, uh, we just drill underneath the permitted areas and we add a million ounces. This one you saw on the video, 
but very high grade, very exciting. It's completely open and a preserved system to the south. Uh, this is over to Cacao. This is four kilometers away. Uh, we drilled this uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, and if you look over to the left, uh, there's some of the drilling. We've got, a we've got four kilometers here. Now, this is a very big vein. Just, just bear in mind that the main vein is 1.6 kilometers, and that's got 1.3 million ounces on. This is four kilometers, and we think it's the next Landia vein, Cacao. So if you look at this long section here, we've everything beneath that blue line is greater than 10 meters true thickness of mineralization. That's massive. That, that really is great width for underground mining. Now, at the moment, we're clipping the surface, and this is what Luke talks about. We got this fault to the south. There's no mineralization really on the surface. Um, uh, we've got 100,000 ounces here, but we think this could be easily over another million ounces. We ju it just needs drilling, and it's going to be an underground mine. But uh, it's the textures of the vein, when the geologists look at it, are exactly the same as Landia vein. It's a really good, healthy, strong-looking vein. Uh, environmental, social, I think I'll just kind of wrap up with this. We do huge amounts with the community. We've done a water purification system uh, for a quarter million dollars. We give 452 households five gallons of drinking water twice a week. We've got lots of involvement groups with the elderly and the youth and different committees. We're running training programs for over 100 people at the moment to be for the future jobs in the mine. Uh, uh, and we have a social team of 12 people. We have information offices in the local community manned uh, for everyone to ask questions. Um, so I'm just going to wrap up by saying Condor's got, we have the silver and Rio Luna in 2.5 million ounces. We're fully permitted to construct and to operate. We've got a reserve case of 82,000 in reality. If we add the other pits in, we get to 100 to 120,000 ounces of gold a year. If we add the underground in, we get to 150. I've uh, got the mill in the country, and we've we've done a lot of work on what the what if this could be in terms of major gold district. And I've sh shared a slide there saying could be up to another twelve million. It probably won't, but if it came in with another three to five, we'd all be we'd all be delighted. And that's part of the value that a hopefully a big a big uh, producer would see when they come and assess this project. So with that, I'll uh, I'll finish my uh, presentation. Over to you, sir. Many thanks, Mark, and um, thank you for sharing that that new video, which is helping us visualise exactly what's going on at ground level. Now, you and I have spoken to each other for years, not uh, not decades, as I said earlier um, in the event. This, in my opinion, this is a tier one project, fully permitted. You have feasibility studies, you have the land, you have a mill in the country, you've cleared 14 hectares of site, you own 100%. The government has given its blessing. So I'm just wondering um, how conversations are going with potential buyers, and B, if you don't sell, um, what's, what's the plan? Is it to get a, a joint venture going to get this tier one project into production? Well, uh, well thank, thanks uh, for, 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 for the question, yes. Um, in terms of the sale process, we announced um, last November that we, we've appointed uh, and a small investment bank in the UK called Hanneman Partners to run a process. That takes time. They take sort of six weeks to prepare information memorandums, which are 80 pages. 
uh, teasers, executive summaries, financial models. We have a virtual data room with all this data in. All the technical stuff is there. I mean, it's a massive data room after 12 years of work. Uh, and has all the you know, detailed designs for the tailing storage facility and the processing plant and so forth. So we've 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 got it still about we gave the market update about 10 weeks ago. We've got still got nine companies under NDA. We've are all in the data room having a different stages of due diligence. We've had three companies go to Nigragia to do site visits of the project, and we've got four non-binding offers. Now the non-binding offers, I can't disclose the sums, but uh, the the idea for us is to get one of those people who put a non-binding indication into binding. And as soon as that happens, we, we um, you know, we'll announce that to the stock market because that becomes material. Uh, so there's a lot, what I would, the message I give is there's a lot of interest. And not only that, there continues to be a lot of interest. I had an hour on the phone last Friday with another, uh, a, a very big investor based in the US incidentally, who wanted to join the process. So we've sent him NDAs and said, well, you know, you're welcome to join. There's nothing, it's still it's still there until something's signed. So there continues to be interest because there's a, a massive scarcity of projects that are construction ready and on a plate. So I think the project will get, will get sold in terms of plan B, if you like. And there has to be a plan B because Jim Mellon, our chairman, 20% shareholder, ultimately has to be happy with the price. He has a, a major say as in, in what price this gets sold for. Um, and, and he won't let this go for nothing. Jim's a very wealthy man. He can continue to fund the company. And the message we've been giving to people is, if you think you're going to get this on the cheap, forget it. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll put it into production ourselves. So if we were to do that, and it's an if, we'd probably start with something smaller, simply as a pilot plant to get some cash flow in so that we could easily for example we've done detailed studies so i can say that we could put up a 500 ton a day mill if we wanted to as a pilot and produce high grade that high grade pit and come up with thirty thousand ounces of gold a year for a minimal capex uh, and and so we so i think there is a plan or there is a plan we've looked at these alternatives our preference and we think the right thing for all the shareholders is to get an exit as long as the price is correct uh, and that's what juniors should be doing. They go on the frontier, they find it, 99% fail. We, uh, they produce something super exciting that a big guy comes along and says, that's my next mine. Um, that's the model. So we, we, we think that's the right thing to be doing at this juncture, but the price has to be right. So I've got you on mute, I think. Now. Oh, I put myself on mute. So Sorry. finally, because we, we're, we're overrunning as yeah. uh, as ever um the the bigger picture for gold for gold explorers is it still exciting is the potential for upside within this sector well we've got a we got the biggest gold miner in the world was newmont producing seven million ounces of gold decided it was too small uh, and bought newcrest with another two and a half million ounces so the m a at the top uh is trickling down already uh, to the juniors. And we had two deals last week announced, um, one with Silvercrest buying something in Australia, uh, and another one, uh, the Charrot Gold in the UK got a $250 million investment. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, M&A going on. It's the right time, particularly if you can produce gold at half the current gold price. Uh, so I think the consolidation and the M&A uh, will, will continue. Um, and personally, 
I think we're, we're, we're about, a, we will break through. Gold's gone sideways for three years between 1700 and just over 2000. And uh, I think there'll be a major breakout in gold this year. So I think we're in the right space at the moment. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. It's always a pleasure. Mark Child, Chairman and Chief Executive of Condor Gold. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And thank you to everyone uh, who joined us um, for this very enlightening um, gold seminar. I do feel as though the markets um, have turned um, markedly so as of last week. So thank you to all our presenters and also thank you to uh, Sophie, Tim, Andreas and the rest of the team at Master Investor who were involved in, in making today possible. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.